Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Salvation, or it might be another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio by the film guys. On your radio right, it is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and the possessor of the largest frame brain on the planet. He is George Willeman. George, welcome. Thank you, On your radio left, and storyboard artist to most of the great movies we've ever seen, and for the story uh, for the uh, Cohen brothers for 20 years and counting, he is our film guy. He's J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, are you staring at my hump again? <laughs> what hump? <laughs> we celebrate perfect movies <laughs> on filmically perfect. And gentlemen, tell us what collection of shadows has brought us to the perfect movie dome today. Arguably one of the most perfectest movies. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. yeah. Perfectest movies on our list. Uh, the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame, directed by William Dieterle, starring uh, Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara. Oh, and she's beautiful in oh, this. Oh, man. The this, film that uh, got robbed at the Oscars. We'll talk about that later. Well, if they would have done it in Technicolor, they might have gotten away with it's it. It's black yeah, and white. Yeah, but it wouldn't have looked right. It looks so good. Yeah. In 1939, they could have gone with Technicolor. But oh, sure. I believe yeah. that we the love one that it beat more. them out at the Oscars was, was in Technicolor. Technicolor. And and was that the first year for Technicolor? No, no. no but they but could have that, done it. Yes, but this nothing. I don't think anything could have beat the Juggernaut that won 39. And that was. You don't know. I'm asking. <laughs> gone with the wind. Oh, but of course, but if kills. Nothing was going to beat that. But if kills. Whoop. True enough. Wow, what an interesting uh, confluence. I can, just, pretty I can just hear those executives RKO. What do you mean, Technicolor? Who's going to look at a guy <laughs> with a hump in color? He's green. <laughs> no one wants to see that in color. In color? <laughs> if you had a hump on your back, would you want to be in color? <laughs> so, gentlemen, as we do think of this among the, the most crystallinely perfect movies, um, let us remind all of us that... Uh, this is not just something that uh, you guys uh, um, like just jot on scrap paper and come in and say, well, it kind of is this. It's actually a set of very strict and stringent rules. And, and they're enforced by Bud Ensky <laughs> at Frozen Turkey Radio. You don't want to mess with him. That's and right. These rules. He'll that stick his little finger right in your rib cage <laughs> and poke at you. <laughs> Bud Ensky's listening. So, gentlemen, tell us what these rules are. Well... The Hunchback of Notre Dame creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. <laughs> Regardless of changes in society, <laughs> the Hunchback of Notre Dame retains its meaning and entertainment value. And never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order, it is perfect in its own scale. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, sort of um, oh, this is a the worst movie. side of human nature on oh, display man. here. Well, this is from the author of Les Miserables, another fun romp in the park. 
did not realize that. Did not realize yeah, they uh, the, Hugo. which um this I was uh, doing a little reading the the novel written by Victor Hugo it was written in 1831. Mm-hmm. 1831. So here's this tale that rings through these ages really at this point. It took them that long to get the rights to that screenplay. That's right. <laughs> They lobby well, and it for takes, that. And, thing, and you man. know, it's interesting because it is a historical novel. You know, I think it's fifteenth century. I believe is when it takes place. Yeah, after the Dark Ages. Right, and the the new beginning of the Age of Enlightenment, or whatever they call so it. So at the time, it's old now, and it was speaking of an even older time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's there's a lot to this, uh, but it all sort of centers around uh, Paris's most famous church. And if George, if you could give us. A little bit of the arc of the action of this amazing movie. The story basically is about um, the bell ringer at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, um, which is one of the centerpieces of the City of Lights. And at the beginning of the film, the gypsies are kind of being being plagued by the local uh, administration. The, 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 the uh, rulers in Paris do not want the gypsies around because they think they're dirty and they're thieves and they just, they, you know, they're going to try to keep them out. But um, at the same time, they're having the Feast of Fools in the downtown square outside of Notre Dame, and, and everyone is partying along. Oh, and, and it's a fabulous. They it, is an, it is one of the most amazing pieces in this whole film. This Actually, huge, it looks like Yellow Springs Street Festival. That <laughs> it does. It it often. A few more people. A few more people. It's so, so dense. And it seems that, that, that everybody has been given a unique and singular job. No one's just standing around right. pretending to talk and, to someone else. And the scene is used very cleverly, not only to show the Feast of Fools, but also to introduce all the major characters within the film. Not only the, the bell ringer and uh, Esmeralda the gypsy, but also the evil Frollo, uh, played by the, the incredibly well-nostrilled Cedric <laughs> Hardwick, and also the king, played by Harry Davenport. And in one corner... The poet Gringoire, played by an incredibly young and handsome Edmund O'Brien, 24 years old, first big film assignment. And in this little sound clip, he's trying to do a mystery play about apocalyptic themes. And Thomas Mitchell, who plays the King of the Beggars, interrupts him and kind of puts him off his oatmeal. How is it? It would be much better if they weren't all watching that play. I'll tend to that. You'd better. You rest and live, and rest again. Beware, you do not live in vain. I mean, if you eat too much, you'll throw it up again. <laughs> <laughs> you stupid, ignorant drunkards, you... I offer you truth. We don't want your truth. <laughs> So at the end of the Feast of Fools, they crown a king of fools, and people are told to come up on stage and be as ugly as possible. And they catch the bell ringer, and they drag him up onto stage, and he is crowned the king of fools because they've never seen anyone so ugly. And he very gladly takes it because of all the attention that's being given to him. And you can see that he's probably he's not just, treated very well no, and usually he's just, at it's, all. It's a great scene because he's just laughing. He's having a wonderful time. And then here comes Frollo, who turns out that he – Sort of rescued the child, uh, rescued the bell ringer as a child, and left him with his brother, who's the archdeacon of Notre Dame. One tiny thing that I learned only from watching this movie and becoming interested in it again is that Quasimodo is the be- the beginning uh, syllables of a Gregorian chant that is sung 
traditionally on the day that it just so happened in this story that the the child was left on the foundling bench at the church. I just really? learned that. Well, you're reading more than I am. Quasimodo. Then. I just watched the movie. Quasimodo, which means partial man, mm. partially a man. Mm. Um, kind of a mean thing. I mean, they could have sure. called him Fred or something, but no. <laughs> Quasimodo. Yeah. So as the story progresses there, as with every Victor Hugo story, there are several different story arcs all kind of wending their way together. So you have Quasimodo, you have Frollo, who is lusting after Esmeralda the gypsy and sends the hunchback out to catch her, and then the hunchback ends up getting punished for something he didn't do. And when that happens, Esmeralda, taking pity on him, gives him a drink of water. He's so in a pillory. He's, he's being... in a pillory. No, he's on a, 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 a yeah, turntable. Turntable. Turntable oh, being oh, whipped. Right, right, and then they right. leave him out in the hot sun to bake for a couple hours. And she oh. gives him a drink of water. So as the story progresses... Uh, Esmeralda spurns Frollo and ends up getting accused of killing this Captain Phoebus and is being thrown in jail and accused of being a witch, blah, 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 blah. And just before she's to be executed, the hunchback rescues her, takes her into the church and does the famous sanctuary, sanctuary thing. And the second little piece of sound that we have collected here is this wonderful little conversation between Quasimodo and Esmeralda the Gypsy. It's very, very touching. Eat, eat. I'm going away so that you don't have to see my ugly face when you're eating. Come here. You call me back. I'm, I'm deaf, you know. You, you, you would think there'd be nothing more wrong with me, wouldn't you? But, but I, I'm deaf, too. It's horrible. Huh? I never realized till now how ugly I am. And because you're so beautiful. I'm not a man. I'm not a beast. <laughs> I'm, I'm about as shapeless as the man in the moon. <laughs> Why did you save me? Oh, I tried to carry you off. And the next day you gave me a drink of water and a little pity. And a little pity. Bert Lahr reprises that scene in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Same year. Same year, actually. <laughs> oh, what a year. Mm-hmm. Oh, 39 what a year is movies. the big yeah, year for movies. Is Why is that? Is, the... there, is there some prevailing societal... Uh, I think it's the you know, looming World War II, mm. so Hollywood was working really hard to make sure people weren't ha- unhappy. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, 39 Well, you got to remember, big, big all they had was radio magazines and movies back then. That's right. right. And, well, I'm not really, I don't want to really give any more of the story because okay. people, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Uh, it's just, it's wonderful. It's heartbreaking. 
It's one of the most beautiful movies you will ever see in your entire life. So we're talking about Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, I suppose if, if you're from, uh, you're from Ohio, Indiana. like you're a football we are. fan, <laughs> right? Or from Indiana. Yeah, I didn't know they had such a big church in Indiana. Yeah, <laughs> 1939, black and white film, uh, uh, directed by William Dieterle. Dieterle, yes. What, what else uh, um, does he have under his belt? Dieterle um, came over in the early 30s from. Germany. Germany. That's yeah. a very German name. And, I'm and 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 I think he originally he was working with the director Max Reinhardt on *Midsummer Night's Dream* for Warner Brothers, and then kind of broke away after that, and was given work as well. Uh, his stuff is really really good. Um, I think he did *The Devil and Daniel Webster*, which is another amazing film, which I hope will end up on our show at some point. Well, another reason that I'm always so grateful to know the film guys is that um, I've learned. I, I watch movies in a different way, and the way this movie after the the introduction and some credits and a brief little setup of you know still of some words you get the picture of the church in the distance and then it draws back but draws in through a window and i'm like that's brilliant well they yeah. spent a lot of money on that church and they were probably going to get through that window every way they could yeah. <laughs> this is definitely one of i mean it's kind of a surprise from rko because while rko made did make a lot of really great movies i i can't think of another one that they spent this much money on this had to be an expensive production where was this shot this was shot at the rko encino ranch in uh, used to be in encino california which is also where they shot it's a wonderful life and many many other films too rko had it until the mid 50s when they were having a lot of money problems they sold it off and now there's a, a subdivision there i think called uh, encino green or something jay like todd that. you seem to think that you've actually seen the side of this massive what was this massive? no that's the, there's hardly anything left of the ranches as mm. we know there's the burbank ranch which still exists but it's a mere shadow of what it once was um the the biggest lot still in hollywood is universal that's it and i don't know what's left after the fire from that one wow. there's a little bit of warner brother lot there's not much of any of paramount there's a couple streets but as far as what what we're talking about here each studio had a, a patch of real estate in the desert or somewhere in the orange groves of los angeles where they built all these movies and they were they were everywhere at one time and now the only thing really left of the, of the movie places now are just the, the stages that's it if amazingly that, enough 100 years later after all the real estate that's been moved and torn up, those still exist. And many of those are almost 100 years old now. Some of them are. But they st- I'm sure some of the interiors were, were shot there in Hollywood for this, but most of it's exterior, and it's pretty and they enormous. built this stuff. And what always amazed me about this, because this is a very r- real set. I'm, right. There was not a single point that I caught a glimpse of anything that I felt— I- I'm not sure how far up they built the front facade. I know they built it up at least to the first balcony, and the rest of it might have been you know, added you in later as a the glass, glass shot. You can see it painted on there. Yeah. And for those of you who are wondering what we talk about when we talk about a glass shot, it's probably one of the most amazing pieces of movie magic in which an artist would come in and paint the re- remainder of a building or room on a large sheet of glass that would then be hung in a big frame in front of the camera to match up. And because film shoots flat or in two dimensions you could fake this distance so you didn't have to spend the money spend to the money build, build the entire facade you only had to build the first floor some of the some of the unions are still called like local 800 is still matte painters and they oh, still really? have a, the origination of which was mats you know glass mats that's what they painted and the really interesting thing about those is that you could only the camera had to be locked down it couldn't be moved sure. because it was flat and if you looked at that glass when i just got in the business i remember seeing a few of them because uh, there was a few glass painters still around 
But if you just moved off axis like five degrees, yeah, you couldn't totally tell what it was. It was just those guys had such technique. But if you looked at right where the lens plumbed its line right down, then it'd be magic. Mm-hmm. Instant magic looking through the, the glass viewfinder. You just couldn't believe what you were seeing. And it was layers of glass. It wasn't just one glass. It was like five layers of glass. Wow. King Kong is the ultimate, in my yeah, opinion, glass. Full of glass shots. Mad. And that's on this movie, that's how they made that. And plus, you got to remember, all they had to work with back then was plaster. That's it. They didn't do any <laughs> plastic or any foam or anything, man. It so was, they had to actually sculpt and or mold. Sculpt and mold using plaster. And, 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 and covering and, wood. And that's the art side. On top of that, they had these huge arc lamps. All over that, because they're lighting a lot of area right. in this movie. And this this movie had to be just one of the biggest things on their payroll, because there's thousands of extras, it looks oh, like. Oh, it's there. unbelievable. Yeah. The, 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 the festival scene, I've never... I mean, I saw this as a kid and was deeply impressed by this movie, um, but I wasn't looking at movies in the same way, but seeing this again now... And an assistant director would have to stop this whole crowd and start them again without uh, walkie-talkies or telephones or anything. They were out there on those big megaphones, and the director had to work through the assistant directors to move all these people and get them going while the cameras were rolling at the same time. That is a massive achievement. And this, this would have been a huge shoot, and from what I understand, it was shot, I believe, during the summer of 1939 out at that ranch. So it was hot. They're all mm. costumed. Yeah, they're all heavily costumed, and poor Charles Lawton. I mean, Charles Lawton is, is the is most a, heavily costumed of all. Yeah, he's a, he's a great actor. He's an amazing actor, and he amazing, wonderful characters. And in this one, he kind of went, you know, the extra. He went to 11 on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because not only is he is he playing a character, but he has appliances in his mouth. He's got one half of his face covered with makeup and a fake eye. So you can't even, he really can't even can literally see, very see well. through one eye. If you're, not really, a, if you're not really watching the movie, it'll be obvious. Yeah. He's Ta-da. got a, a, a yep. 75 pound rubber hump on his back <laughs> strapped to him. They say he carried his mother around for like three weeks just to get in shape. <laughs> and, and so he's got to wear all this. And, and, and this is probably the major story that has always stuck with me. And it says a lot about a William Dieterle, too. Um, the scene where Quasimodo is whipped in the pillory mm. took a week to shoot. Height of summer, oh. out in the sunlight. And in that one, since they tear Quasimodo's cover off, his shirt off, so that his bare back is exposed, Lawton not only is wearing all his makeup, he's wearing a rubber shirt over his hump so that it's, you know, his hump is covered. And well, so here certainly, he we'll make him strain what a good flogging will do for your disposition, <laughs> right? You know, especially if it's a woman like Marino. And 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 plus <laughs> that he's tied down, so he's tied down mm. to this this wheel. And what happens is because they're shooting this from different angles, and they couldn't have the camera up on the pillory itself, they would have to build a big wooden stand to put the camera on. So they big big build the stand, put the camera up, shoot from that direction, dismantle the stand. Move it over, build it another place, oh, put the camera on. So it took a whole week to man. shoot this, for, you know, ever. And poor Lawton has to sit there tied down to this stand for the, you know, the eight hours a day for a week. Talk about your method acting. Mm-hmm. But he gets paid for it, you know. <laughs> right. Don't feel too sorry for him. Well, the only it's thing is his he, job. But the whole thing, and he he really does pull it off. I mean, prosthetics yeah, man, and he's a great all. actor. Well, I'm El- so, I, I remember feeling just almost ashamed of human beings right. at how they treated this well, poor soul. And this is as a child, yeah. I thought that. Elsa Lanchester, his wife, said that he would come home in the evening, especially during that time, just weeping Aww. and black and blue from being tied down. Now, to add to all this, of the whole week of shooting, the story is that Dieterle went up to Lawton, tied down on this thing, and leaned over to him at one point and said, we're going to shoot this one more time. 
because I want to see you suffer. Now, I've always heard wow. that Dieter, Dieter Lee was the sort of the typically typically Germanic film director. A method you know, director. A method director and very, very hard to work with. But boy, what kind of results he got from these people. I mean, some of them were never better. We're talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1939, black and white. Uh, brilliant, brilliant piece of film. Uh, yeah, I remember. I particularly like the old guy getting a bath scene. He's trying to figure <laughs> out what to do with his, you know, his city of people. You know, should we. <laughs> Well, yeah, oh, it's Harry Dev making Harry the huge report. decisions for the whole city while he's getting his bath. You know? right. yeah, he seems like a bit of a the uh, the uh, lovable old Harry Davenport is King Louis the Eleventh. They really go to they they go to great pains to differentiate who is ugly and who is not in the beginning of this movie, and uh, what they what they're trying to kind of condition you into doing, whether you don't know it or not, is they're trying to get you to appreciate the hunt. The hunchback, you know, you start loving this guy. You start appreciating. You don't consider him ugly, um, and then you start feeling pulling for him. But as always, one of the things that that tugs the story along is a beautiful girl like Maureen O'Hara. And there's nothing like a wild gypsy to come in and upset a town. <laughs> and Frollo oh. is the first guy who who starts getting in touch with his inner feelings of this girl, you know? <laughs> and, of course, the substitutional sacrifice here is Quasimodo. Aww. And, of course, for or for Frollo, his inner feelings, of course, means that she's bewitched him. Yes, she has. And so she has she to was accused of witchcraft as part of the thing uh, she's being taken once, to task yes. for. Yeah, and he uses sanctuary to his full advantage. He's not going to come clean that he's the problem for all this. And, uh, you know, th- who cares if he brought the guy in when he was a little kid and took care of him and everything? He's he's ready to be thrown into the fire for Frollo's <laughs> feelings there, you know? <laughs> you can ob- obviously see there's nothing more important than Frollo's feelings in this movie, you know? Uh, the court scene is really cool. That was, uh, you know, Edmund O'Brien becomes the best before Perry Mason, Perry uh-huh. Mason guy I've ever seen in court. And uh, he, Edmund O'Brien always turns in a great job. And you can see why he went on to become a very, very fantastic actor because of the the passion he displays in this movie. That's and right, and and we'll be seeing more of him. We will in a, a future episode. He's one of George and I's favorite actors. Oh, my goodness, yes. He's yes. awfully good, and I was stunned because I watched uh, the other movie, which I, we'll, keep, we'll keep under our hats just now, uh, first, and then you pointed it out. He's so much younger, so thin, and so uh, sort of lithe, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, is, I was It's astonished. almost disturbing. It is. Uh, like, that's the same is. guy. Yeah, I had to stop and go back and look is that the Edmund O'Brien that I know from, like, uh, The Girl Can't Help It or DOA or yeah. all those incredible movies where his piles, his hair is all piled up on top of his head and he's kind of rotund? And he's talking about standing the test of time. His uh, his ability is certainly dead. I think probably Jackie Gleason watched him a lot because he really rolls his eyes. He has these big, enormous eye, eyes that he uses, and especially in this movie here. Um, just absolutely fabulous performances from all. Fabulous set. Just fabulous really and also, well done. Also add in the music really adds Alfred Newman, one of the great, and one of the family of Newmans of which uh, Randy Newman is a member. Um, oh, is that right? I believe. I believe this guy's big music family. I believe it's his uncle, I think. Pretty sure. Wow. How did I live this it. long and not know that? And he's in so, he does so much soundtrack work. So interesting. Right. And yeah. uh, and also the cinematographer, Joseph August, who's done a lot, a lot of great stuff, including another Dieter, Dieterly must have liked him because he had him do... Uh, the Devil and Daniel Webster, which is another amazingly photographed film. I always told George Clooney that if he really wanted to test his his acting ability, he should play Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, it is interesting how many, I guess we should mention how many times this has been filmed. There's a there's a, a 1912 version. I'm not sure who plays in Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, probably the most famous one is the one from the early 20s with Lon Chaney. I had a is, monogram model of right, that. It's really, really Ooh. good. Um, Aurora model, that's what it was. Okay. Then there's this 39 one. Um, then in the 50s, there was uh, one with Anthony Quinn playing the uh, the Hunchback. Um, there is one from, I believe, either the 70s or 80s with Anthony Hopkins playing the Hunchback. Wow. And there's one of more recent vintage. I do not remember who plays it in that one, but it is a... And, an, of course, an, Disney did it as Disney a cartoon. Disney did the animated one, and Tom Hulse, who played Pinto in Animal House, was right. the voice of the <laughs> Hunchback in that one. Wow, I didn't see that, so I wonder. I bet I've only seen a little bit of well. it. It's a beautiful film. Yeah, they obviously modeled their hunchback off of Charles Lawton. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar. Well, it's so memorable. It is so, uh, so stick. And we will, to your you ribs. know, we did one film, The Night of the Hunter, which Charles Lawton directed. The only film that Charles Lawton yeah. because he came, George. I think you told me he came from theater mm-hmm. and then moved to and then th- th- this, right. He did this theater. Was he did the big one. Yeah, for he did him. theater and film, and he did a little bit of television. Ironically, he was the man who originally introduced Elvis on the uh, Ed Sullivan show because Ed was not around. Ed wow. had been in a car accident, so. Charles Lawton introduced Elvis. Boy was Elvis, Elvis, Elvis Presley. Boy was Sullivan sore about that. Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Filmically Perfect. We've been talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 1939, not the first or the last, that's but right. a superb representation of this story. I'm, you know, I, it's interesting how athletic he becomes in this movie. All of a sudden, when you've sided with this this character and he's okay and you can almost kind of like you know hang out with this guy. You'll notice that he rises to the occasion. He becomes very athletic, like Tarzan. He swings and he he you know. Mm-hmm. Which you don't expect. From and he him. also right pushes over that big vat of oil. He's got all the strength, you know, because he's you know, he's he's defending his the woman defending of his dream because you know? he thinks they're out to kill her. Yeah, he Aww. doesn't want anybody. He's like you know a good dependable you know dog. You know he's going to make sure nobody gets over that. He he gets very athletic. You right. can just see him. He looks well, like an Olympic champion. He starts throwing things off. And it's also and interesting at that point, and maybe this is sort of a Victor Hugoism, that even the best intentions can go horribly awry if you don't have all the information you need. Uh. He also has selective hearing. What? <laughs> oh, he's, he can sometimes hear and sometimes yeah, not. His bells, he's deaf you know. from what? the bells. What? What? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but it's the bells, and it took me, oh, I just tell you, it just has stuck with me my entire life, and particularly that notion of sanctuary. Like, there's a place that you can run to yeah. where you are safe, period. And the, and the the female character does a very nice dissertation on grace and law up there when they're trying to say that she's not allowed in there. To, right. It's, there's a big, you know, good thing about where you're challenged on your your knowledge of grace and law and the church. Right. Well, yeah, and there's also a beautiful thing about about being a, of giving nature where the first time they take her into the church and they introduce her, they show her a statue of the Virgin Mary and dearly cuts to all these very wealthy women praying and going, give me wealth, give yes. me power, give me love, give me this. And then they cut to her, cut to uh, the gypsy, and she goes, take all I have, but protect my people. And you know where and the word gypsy moment. comes from, don't you? I don't. They thought they were from Egypt. No. That's why they call them gypsy. They thought yeah. they were renegades from gyp- uh, Egypt. What you can't learn from the film, Filmically guys. Perfect. That's right. Gentlemen, we are at the end of another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WI. So let's think about the rules just quickly. It's They're full on. There's a, It's rock solid. The world is created. The world is sustained. It's entertaining. It has lots of meaning. And it's not in any list. Not in any list. And... Yeah. Think about it. It was written 1831. We're looking at a remake in 19... 1939. Uh, 100 and 
seven years later. And then here we are today in 2012 talking about this movie, and I think that people were talking about this story because it's so human That's right. for the rest of our days. Gentlemen, if somebody wanted to suggest a perfect movie to you, what would they do? Uh, I'd say, well, who is the Quasimodo in your life? <laughs> is it your wife or husband? Well, I've got a hunch that I know. No, they can go to our website, uh, perfectmovie.net, see what we're all about. They can write us at filmguys at perfectmovie.net. They can look us up on Facebook. They can check us out on iTunes. They can check us on WISO.org. NPR.org. There's a lot of ways to connect, and we hope that you will. Do you think that uh, do you think that you have a movie that should be on our list, or do you have something to say about one that's been on? That maybe there's a chink in the rules. We always love to hear from you, no matter right. what it is. And uh, connect through, won't you? Thanks, guys. Thank George, you, George. Thanks for being here, Jay Todd. My pleasure. Thank oh, you very much. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.